Welcome to the Audiobook Lovin' Series, a month-long event celebrating the authors and narrators that bring romance stories to life. Listen along as Viviana, Enchantress of Books, interviews your favorite writers and voices, share special guest posts, and stay tuned for some special information at the conclusion of the episode. Hi, everyone. My name is Julia Whalen, and I'm chatting with author Brittany Cavallaro about Emily Henry's Beach Read, brought to you by Audiobook Lovin', hosted by Viviana, Enchantress of Books. Brittany Cavallaro is the New York Times bestselling author of the Charlotte Holmes series, a YA series that recasts Sherlock Holmes as a brilliant, troubled, funny, thoroughly contemporary, feminist, teenage descendant of Sherlock. Brie is also an accomplished poet and is, what I have to imagine, the best teacher of creative writing in the world. So, why am I talking to Brittany about a book neither of us wrote? Well, <laughs> Brittany, uh, Brittany is very good friends with Emily Henry. In fact, they co-wrote the wonderful YA novel that came out last summer called Hello Girls, which I had the absolute pleasure of narrating. Uh, furthermore, Brie and I went to college together and sat through many a fiction workshop and lecture, honing a very similar sense of what good literature is and developing heretical opinions about uh, basically everything. So when I knew I wanted to discuss Beach Read for Audiobook Lovin', I went to Brie and asked if she'd like to do this with me. It is a very hard time to be promoting books right now, as you can imagine, and Emily has her plate so full, uh, especially now that she is a New York Times bestselling author. So we decided, yeah, so we decided that we were worthy surrogates and could gush about her book without having to involve her, which makes us both very good friends and very supportive colleagues, and we feel very superior <laughs> right now. <laughs> So, uh, okay, so Beach Read, if you haven't heard of it somehow, is uh, a stunningly fun but also very powerfully wise book about a women's fiction author who no longer believes in happy endings, or really love for that matter, who holds up in her dead father's cabin on Lake Michigan to finally write her next book. But she is stuck. Dreaded writer's block has, has struck her. So she finds out that her neighbor on the lake is a well-respected literary fiction writer. Uh, Brie, who's like his avatar, Gus's avatar? Is it Franzen? Um, he's like a baby Franzen, maybe. I mean, any, I, I love, isn't his book, his fake book that he's writing in Beach Read called The Vexations? Well, The Revelatories. <laughs> the Revelatories. The Vexations is a real book. It's, it, she just nails that corner of like, Brooklyn dude beard. He does. It's a little bit. It's a little bit. I mean, less obnoxious. Way less obnoxious because he's actually very charming and sexy yeah. and clever. But um, it's like Dana Schwartz's guy in your MFA Twitter. <laughs> um, so anyway, so okay. So January and Gus strike a deal. They will swap genres. He'll write something light and fun. She'll write the next great American novel, and they will teach each other how to do it. Um, they also have a past. They went to college together, and if you're wondering if there is some latent, repressed, frustrated attraction there, spoiler alert, there is. It is swoony and bantery and absolutely delightful. However, that is not what we're going to focus on today. <laughs> we want to talk about this line between women's fiction and romance and why it just doesn't seem to get the respect it deserves, which the book itself, Beach Read, addresses in a very meta way because you have these two authors writing in two different categories and what their lives and careers look like as a result. Um, and that is really, I mean, I, I read this book early. I read it last summer before I knew I was narrating the audiobook. I blurbed it. And that was really what stuck out to me. I just loved that she was addressing this 
in such an interesting, fresh, new way. So, okay. So for a little context, Brie, um, when it comes to schooling, you went all the way. <laughs> yeah, I was... You went to a creative writing high school, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was one of those who realized that I was pretty useless for anything else pretty early. <laughs> so I, I won a scholarship to go to um, a performing arts school, um, kind of like fame, but in the Northern Michigan woods uh, called yeah, Minnesota. Right? Yeah, that's actually where I teach now. I teach creative writing there. Awesome. Um, yeah. So I, I spent two my last two years of high school there and then uh, went on to Middlebury um, and then went on to my MFA in poetry and then went on to my PhD in English literature and creative writing. So I went straight through. Um, there's like nothing else for you to do. No, no. I, I knocked it all out before I was 30, which in retrospect has left me with a giant gaping maw where the rest of my life is supposed to be. <laughs> um, that's not true. She's fine. No. Everything is together. Like, <laughs> I'm totally fine. Everything's fine. You're and, competent. And she's written four novels now, five novels now. Yeah. Um, but it's funny to think about it because from the jump, um, I was in creative writing workshops. And when I was in those workshops, the pressure was definitely to um, be producing, obviously, short stories, right? Uh, fiction workshops are not really geared toward the novel workshop, though I do teach a novel workshop now of trying to figure out some way to make that work. Um, yeah, it seems to be more just a function of how do you actually do that? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, I have my students, I spend the first half of the semester talking about structure and form with them. And then I we have them write the first 50 pages of their book. And that's about as far as you can get um, in a novel workshop. But that wasn't the experience I, I necessarily had growing up. And I had a lot of really amazing teachers who taught me a lot of things. But I also instinctively knew that my female characters, who I was telling stories about, could not be happy because if they were at all happy at any point, um, I would be writing something that was not literary fiction anymore. And maybe that's a genderless thing. Maybe that is also the same for male characters. I haven't written a ton of male characters. Um, but I remember just thinking like, I have to make sure that these girls have the markers of serious literary characters you know, um, if I'm going to be writing stories about them. It's part of the reason why I went to poetry, because poetry, no, but like you can, the subject matter is entirely up to you because the form is so quote unquote out there um, that you can write poems about dragons or you can write poems right. about space stations or poems about women being happy. And it's, and it's just all a metaphor anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There are no categories within it. And that was so freeing. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so you then took that and you actually chose to write in YA, which I'm sure wasn't uh, particularly applauded um, in your programs. Uh, but what did you find? Did you Were you looking for that, for that ability, that space to write those stories about those people that you wanted to write? Yeah, I was actually pretty deliberate about it. Um, I'd always written stories about teenagers. Um, you know, I tried to kind of weasel them into being literary fiction however I could. And obviously there are plenty of books that are published as literary fiction that have teenage protagonists. Um, but, you know, I really wanted to write in a category that would allow me freedom of movement because, you know, my own reading, the things that I love, I 
inhale romance novels. I love mass market fantasy with like, you know, the Fabio, like rippling, like sword on the back, sword and sorcerer covers. I love literary fiction. I read really widely and I want to write really widely, but there is still this idea that you sort of have to pick your lane. And the one place where I feel like in fiction that isn't necessarily true um, is in YA, where um, there is a slipperiness of genre. Books tend to be categorized as YA first and then um, YA fantasy or YA quote unquote contemporary, right? YA literary fiction or what have you. And your readers are more willing to follow you from idea to idea. And Emily wrote in the YA space, her books were also very genre bendy. Yeah. Ascribed to like a particular category. Um, and it's so interesting. Like, I think this is probably the most straightforward narrative that she has done, in that there's not a fantasy element, there's not a supernatural element. Um, and it's a, an entirely new category for her. She jumped into women's fiction or romance. And that's, that's, that actually, I'm not sure. I think the book is being marketed as a romance. I was, yeah. I was curious to see how that was going to, because when I read it last summer, I, I felt it was very firmly women's fiction, but now I'm seeing it appear on these romance lists. And maybe that is just a, a function of the, the, the category lines are slipping, like we're losing it a little bit in the sand, or if it's just pure business, like marketing, this is, this mm-hmm. is the way this book is going to sell best. Um, or is it as something, something as simple as, sex on the page. Is that where we draw the line between women's fiction and romance? Uh, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's been interesting. I actually, I try to avoid Goodreads as an author because it doesn't really feel like a space for me. <laughs> it feels like a space for readers and also a space where you can make yourself crazy. Right. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I was scrolling through um, the reviews of Beach Read um, to get ready for this conversation. And one thing I noted uh, were the number of reviews that said, actually, I feel like this is women's fiction. I feel like the marketing here is misleading. And I loved the book. It had nothing to do with my enjoyment of the book. Um, But the way that this book was packaged and marketed made me feel like it would be a more straight ahead romance. Um, And it's interesting. I mean, like, I... I read a lot of romance. I read a lot of historical romance specifically because it's... uh, a terrific, and it's also uh, the easiest way for me to get my 19th century fix like directly into my veins. Yes, right. um, <laughs> but with Beach Read, um, you know, I, I feel like it satisfies all of those romance tropes that I really want. Um, but in thinking about it vis a vis like other like upmarket uh, women's fiction titles, I think it is a little bit more straightforward um, about the fact that the emotional arc of this book is about these two people getting together. Right. That, yes, that's very interesting because one of the books that I, I've been comping it to, um, and I actually heard Emily say the same thing, was Evie Drake Starts Over, which is also yeah. a book I adored um, and I narrated. And I feel that in terms of the banter, in terms of the rom-com aspect of it, it is very similar, that these are just two people you are rooting for from the very beginning. But with Evie, a couple of things. I think there isn't sex on the page the way there is in Beach Read. And it is a, a full character journey. To what, what you're saying, the arc is she has to get her head right, and it doesn't really involve him. Mm-hmm. And I think that 
I mean, to be fair, I think that January, that's very true. She has, a, there's a, the, an entire separate plot as her dealing with her emotions around her father's death and his betrayals um, and trying to get her career back on track. So that all exists, but maybe it is that the, the primary focus of the book is the relationship. Yeah, I, I wonder about that. And I mean, the, her feelings about her father and her feelings about her own writing um, both of those are explored through her relationship with Gus primarily, yes. right? Um, and Gus's own issues are explored through his relationship with her. And when I think about romance, I tend to think about, okay, this is a story about two people who are broken, who have found the counterpoint, uh, the antidote in the other person, where women's fiction seems like, to me, and again, I'm not an expert, um, but it feels like... Uh, the self-actualization, the work of that has to take place within uh, the main character, the female main character, and then it's the and a man, right? Mm -hmm. And also a romance. Right, Um, and also there's this cute guy. Right, Um, okay, yes, I I would agree, I would agree with that. Um, Now, in the book, in Beatread, Emily makes it clear that January actually is a women's fiction writer, not romance. And it's interesting because she has part of her conflict when she begins the book is that she doesn't know that she can keep writing these stories that have happily ever afters that all that wrap up nice and tidily and um, with everything that has happened in her life. She is battling the fact that she is no longer the optimist she once was. Life has taken her down a peg and how can she write that? And also I think the question of like writing to your audience. Like when your reader expects a certain thing and you just don't have it in you anymore to give. I mean, we have seen (laughs) so many authors in this time period alone being like, I can't write. How am I writing anything joyful or funny or like the the world is conspiring against me? Yeah. Um, So I'm wondering if are we just seeing kind of the breakdown of this distinct category that maybe this is something that is just disappearing into the mists or do you think books are still going to need to be marketed to a certain category? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, just to think of it from cover marketing, um, you know, the, the illustrated cover for the rom-com has very much become de rigueur in the last couple of years. Right. In a way that I really love, I love them. Um, but um, my good friend Carrie Clutter put out a wonderful book uh, this Tuesday called East Coast Girls, which I think is pretty firmly upmarket women's fiction, book club fiction, literary commercial hybrid fiction. Um, and it has the kind of cover I would expect for that, which is more setting based. It's more pastels. Um, we look at it and a, a place is evoked um, much more so than representations of those characters, right? Um, it's interesting just to think about like that marketing from like a critical perspective, because if I'm looking at the cover of a romance novel, I immediately know that like the emotional journeys of these two people intersecting is going to be the main focus where, you know, women's fiction seems to exist, um, in a slightly more kind of, um, I don't know, uh, holistic place. Like there's, there's more, um, of an emphasis on community. There's an emphasis on family. There's an emphasis on the self. Right. And so we see like less of a representation of those two things. When I think about marketing, the kind of marketing that like has the biggest effect, I always think about 
like the presentation of the book. I always think about the cover. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know necessarily how much of the blurring of genres we're going to see in terms of like straightforward presentation, because those covers have to tell you a story about the book that you're going to read. And I don't know necessarily yet if we have, um, I don't know, like different, um, like such, these, these things are in such different lanes and I don't necessarily know if those lanes are converging yet. Whether they should be is like another question. Right. I mean, I think that, that there's a, I think where it really comes down to is it comes down to the readers. Readers right. sharing what they've loved with friends, with on Goodreads. Um, you, they're doing, they're carrying a lot. They're, they're taking on a lot of the responsibility for a book's success when something is straddling a genre. Um, and I mean, we're seeing a lot of, you know, kind of romance novels hit the bestseller lists, uh, Jasmine's books, Guillory's books, um, Helen Huang's books, like classic kind of romance novels that are, have gone more mainstream. They're not just genre romance. And so I guess I'm just seeing, I guess, more acceptability um, or more uh, excitement about these books. And maybe it's because we're moving away finally from the idea that these books are guilty pleasures, that they're something to be ashamed about. Um, they're, it's pop culture now and it's right. accepted and people are wanting to talk about them. Do you um, think that, I have a theory and I'm wondering what you think about this. Ever since like the death of the romantic comedy in movie theaters, uh, the fact that like we really cannot go see a romantic comedy in the theaters. I mean, obviously right now, nobody can see anything in the theaters. And Netflix has resurrected those a little bit in the last few years. But there was a gap. I want to say like 2009 was the last really good year for the rom-com. And I wonder, I wonder about our craving for those kinds of stories if part of the reason why um, those are more readily available and more acceptable now as we're not getting those kinds of stories in other mediums. Ooh, I like that. I don't know. No, I think that I that, really want, I think there's something there. No, I think there's something there because I think that we, you know, that is, that is a huge part of, I mean, my favorite, my favorite films are those films and you're yeah. right, but I can't name something in the last 10 years that wasn't already based on a book. Um, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why To All the Boys I Loved Before went so huge. It's an amazing movie. Obviously, I really enjoyed it. Um, but finally, having a teen rom-com on screen, that it was a straight-ahead teen rom-com. Right. right? Um, yeah. I mean, and by straight-ahead, I just mean, like, I think about movies like The Faults in Our Stars or The Spectacular now that are so rooted also in, in tragedy, right? Where, the again, the main plot is not the, the two characters getting together. Love, Simon is another great example of like, you know, I mean, it is a rom-com, um, but Simon's development was so much part of the story. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so do we think that this is all heading in a direction where as these books have more uh, commercial success, um, I think even critical success, like I think, you know, the critics have been very enthusiastic about what Emily's done here. Uh, mm -hmm. Do we think that there might finally be some um, acknowledgement <laughs> that good writing is happening in this space. And I hope so. literary fiction still take up all of the critical air. That's a really good question. And I, I love sort of the, the lampshading that Emily has done with the title here mm -hmm. because 
you know, obviously we have, you know, it's beach read. We have two writers who are on the beach writing their books, but there's also kind of a, like a winking referentiality, right? Um, oh, this is not a serious book, this book, Beach Read. Um, it, this is just something that you can fold the paperback cover back and get sand in and leave at the beach house when you're done with it. When of course, like um, the, the language and the dialogue and the characterization is up there with the very best literary fiction that's being written. It just happens to be funny. Right. So is that is that what it is? Because that's what I've I've been trying to figure out why. I mean, look, one thing that happened for me personally, right, is I came out of Middlebury and English and creative writing, and I hadn't really read anything written in the last hundred years <laughs> when I graduated. <laughs> and then I got into this job where I was suddenly being asked to record books across genre, across category. And one thing I learned really quickly, the snobbery was sort of beaten out of me. And one thing I learned was that good writing is happening across all categories and genres. And it becomes about how someone executes the, ex the expectations of their given category or genre. But within that space, the voices that rise to the top. I mean, I'm not a thriller or mystery reader in you know, my off time, but something like Gone Girl comes up, <laughs> which is so incredibly literary. And the mm -hmm. voice is so sharp and it's so funny. And I just saw suddenly all of the potential in that category. And same thing with romance, same thing with YA. There was a while there where I think the best writing generally happening was happening in YA. Um, so I, I'm wondering if this just isn't taken as seriously as literary fiction only because it's funny and because there's an HEA. And are yeah. we just, do we just not take stories that end on a high note seriously? Well, I mean, it's interesting to think about, obviously this is not like a new development, like the ghettoization of like women's fiction or romance, right? We literally stick it in different places in the bookstore. Um, I remember like as a very self-serious 16 year old being afraid to go into the romance aisles because people would think that I was less serious. You could tell I was fun at parties. I was a blast. Um, so like, you know, um, we literally separate women's lives out from men's lives and then make it shameful to go walk over there um, and look for stories to satisfy us. I, uh, I don't know. Um, well, I guess another question of this is, does it matter? Do we even care that we're, we're reviewed in the Times? Do, are these markers that even need to happen? Is, did you see the summer reading roundup in the New York Times? I loved this. There was no literary fiction on there. It was thrillers, yeah. romance novels, mysteries. I was like screaming in my bedroom. I mean, I know that that's a feature they do every year, but just it, it just feels so... I don't know. Oh, so the question about happy endings, like what I was going to say is that it's always been the case that we, we look askance at happy endings, but happy endings are something that feel almost impossible right now in our current situation. Um, at the very least, the ending to the situation we're in is going to be quite complex and many people will have died, you know, and that's like such a... Die and um, have their livelihoods destroyed and yeah. we have a long road back. And it, you're right. I think that that's... Um, that is something where we are grappling with. And I think fiction as a result is going to become even more escapist than it already is as a result. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, it's optimism has always seemed like the less intelligent choice in terms of the way that it's, it's um, couched to us by the world, the news, academia, you know, I've often felt like 
hoping for the best is kind of a naive, childish thing. Um, we don't want to be taken by surprise. And so looking at stories that end happily, um, you know, it's like a suspension of disbelief. Like I used to be afraid of, <laughs> afraid of, I don't know, afraid of romance novels, I guess, because I just didn't trust it. I was like, so then you get married and it's all fine. You know, I really wanted to, to, to doubt that. And, uh, the happily ever after versus the happy for now has always been a distinction that I find really interesting. Yes. Yeah. As um, someone who wrote a happy for now <laughs> book. Uh, oh my God. The ultimate happy for now book. <laughs> but I saw that happen. Year if you haven't yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I saw that happen where very quickly, I mean, the romance bloggers and community adopted that book early on. And so it became, which was so lovely of them because I was worried they were not going to like it because of the HFN. Um, and I saw that they were actually way more open-minded than for instance, the literary community <laughs> that didn't even acknowledge the book happened. So like, I was just, I, I am thinking that there's something in the air where maybe we are just, the markers are going to be different that we can content ourselves with a massive readership and people who love the work. And if we're not getting the critical acclaim, who cares? Like it is part of dismantling that system anyway. And does it matter? Um, I mean, I always want to be thinking critically and intelligently about books. One of the most freeing things I think that happened to me in my PhD um, was being on a romance pan panel, like a, going to a conference and presenting a paper on romance um, and looking at all of the people who were studying it so intensely as not just um, like a font of like, you know, terrific writing, but also um, romance is, the, it, that genre is the keeper of the stories of women's lives. You know, there's yes. a wonderful uh, book by Janice Radway that came out in the 1980s. And I'm going to get the title wrong. Um, I think it's called Reading the Romance. And it's about, um, it, it's a, like an ethnographical study, right? A study of like culture, um, thinking about women whose romance reading habits interact with their own lives and their marriages and the interplay between those things. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think like, I love that critical work. Um, and I, 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 I would love, I, and maybe this is childish, but like, I would love for other genres to be taken as seriously, to be reviewed as seriously, because I think that some of the very best writing is happening, um, in genre right now. And, um, when you look at literary fiction that takes on fantastical elements, slipstream elements, speculative elements, it's always still classed as literary fiction, right? right? Um, so it's almost like it's taken from those genres and given a little crown and told that it can sit with like the big kids. Right. Um, and that also seems wrong to me. You know, it's not like literary fiction is like the crown jewel that we're all working towards. Um, it's not like, oh, if I was a better writer, I could be writing literary fiction. You know, I think we just have different goals. I think that's true. And I will say that, I mean, one thing that romance, I, I know that the one of the biggest criticisms about it is it's predictable. Like if you know how it ends, who cares? And honestly, from a craft perspective, like just from the writing perspective, I'm like, that's the hardest thing to do. If you know where you're going, if you know where you're ending up and you know you've got certain beats to hit, um, the, the challenge is in how you get there creatively in a way that maybe surprises people that 
how do you trick your reader into thinking things aren't going to work out when they know it's going to work out? <laughs> that is so hard. I know. And well, and hitting those beats in a satisfying way. You know, when I teach writing the novel, the the thing I come back to, um, because it's it's a class where I have kids who are writing in a bunch of different genres, they're sitting side by side and all working on their projects. And the big commonality that we talk about is the control of information. How can you control what your reader knows at any given point? How can you make them anticipate the next thing that's going to happen? How do you make them feel anchored? How do you make them feel curious and anticipatory without feeling um, like they're being led on or um, that you're not going to satisfy them when you get there? And those beats are just as important, if not more important, in literary fiction as they are in genre fiction. But it all has to do with the satisfaction of tropes. Oh, can you oh. teach this class, like do a web? <laughs> I mean, I wanna, I, I'm like in a place right now in the next book where I'm like, I could really use this class. That would be, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I could teach this class to myself, I would be a better writer. I love it when I sit down with my own book. I'm like, let's craft. I'm just going to write some words. <laughs> I just, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So. Thank you for having this conversation. Uh, I'm not sure we we answered a lot, but we certainly asked more questions. And now I'm going to be thinking about this for quite a while. Um, so let's wrap this up by talking about books in this space that we loved, either the books that built us that were foundational or books we read recently. Uh, do you have some some ideas? Yeah, I mean, I, when we were when we were beginning to talk about like the list of like foundational romance uh, titles, like women's fiction titles, I thought of a book that I really would make the argument is a romance, um, which is The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey mm -hmm. Niffler. Um, but that book is very firmly classified as upmarket, right? Book club fiction. Right. Um, and we could have a lot of conversations about that. But I read that book over and over and over again. It was so satisfying. It was so heartbreaking. It felt so much of a place. And um, I remember thinking I wanted to write something that made me feel like that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, honestly, in high school, I think I read a lot of romance in high school. Uh, I love Judith McNaught, those books, historical and contemporary. Um, and I, I realized that I was reading them not just as like a teenager with a developing sense of her own sexuality, but also as a writer and learning plot. Like learning pacing, learning plot, learning dialogue from these writers was so important to me. Um, and then I, like I said, took a break for college. I just didn't, you know, I was doing other things um, and only got back into it when I started recording audiobooks. Um, and since then, I just, I love the books in this space. So I was thinking of, obviously, Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. Um, and there's a book called The Idea of You by Robin Lee, which is I think the perfect example of a complicated story and a hard thing to sell because it is the story of a uh, an older woman um, who dates a young rock star and mm -hmm. is that could just be handled so badly and <laughs> she doesn't she does it perfectly, but it doesn't have that satisfying romance ending. So it's not classified as a romance. It's much more challenging. It's really emotional. It's beautifully done. Um, and that is in this space. Um, obviously, Beatreed. Yeah, Beatreed is just, it, if you haven't read it yet, all of you <laughs> I think by the time this comes well. out, I'm sure that, I mean, I was genuinely worried no one was going to know about this book. So when I was uh, trying to think of what I wanted,
I do beach read because what if people miss it? And now it's just become this juggernaut as it deserves to be. I don't, I can't I know, that's one of those books so that are like, oh, so, so well deserved. Um, speaking of that, I think Taylor Jenkins reads earlier books. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, since Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo and Daisy Jones, obviously she's blown up, but her earlier books, which were more in the women's fiction category, always had complicated love stories um, rooted in very real characters and interesting conflict. And I would just go back and read all of her, her backlist. Um, yeah, I was think, thinking about what you were saying about pacing. Um, when I was reading, when I was writing my most recent novel, which is a historical fantasy, um, I remember, I think I read something like 25 Lisa Claypus books in three months. I mean, I adore her. Um, But I was so interested in the seamless way that she wove in research, um, all of the like little historical details, um, the the things that make the 19th century like fun and different and alive and the way that she would really effortlessly move her characters um, you know, as they grew and developed through these scenes that allowed you those really fun moments. Um, They're master classes. Loretta yeah, Chase is like exactly. that. Lord of Scoundrels is probably, I mean, I just don't know what else you need to do yeah. in a book. Like there's, yeah. There, no, it's incredible. Um, and, and pacing, absolutely. Uh, because the story is two people getting together, right? And how are you going to bring us through all of those moments in a satisfying way. Cause you could do it in three pages. It yes. wouldn't be satisfying. It wouldn't be fun. It wouldn't be good. But how do you do that? Yeah. And I think that with, I mean, with, with Beatry, that is again, so well done. Like it hits those romantic comedy beats in predictable, satisfyingly predictable, but totally original ways. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know what else you have to do. <laughs> you shouldn't have to do anything else. You shouldn't have to do anything else. Like we should just crown her, and she can like go, you know, retire to an island and faff about in a caftan and not. Have to do anything <laughs> I just heard your Oxford come out there. <laughs> <laughs> Faffing about is one of the best yeah. phrases it in American parlance. It happens. Um, okay, well, this was wonderful, Bree. Thank you for taking the time. Um, I, I hope Emily feels well fed.ed um, and uh, I, you're you're writing this summer, and I can't I wait. To and you are too. That. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and and recording. Um, but uh, I would just implore everyone to go out and if you haven't already, uh, secure a copy of Beach Read and uh, enjoy your summer. Yes, <laughs> it will keep you very good company this summer. We promise. Very true. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. And uh, this has been Julia Whalen for Audiobook Lovin', hosted by Viviana, Enchantress of Books. Thank you for joining us in the Audiobook Lovin' series, hosted by Viviana, Enchantress of Books. We hope you have enjoyed this episode as well as the series. We've included audio samples of our guests' work within the post for you to check out. Please make sure to visit the main page, link within the post, to learn more about the series, the authors, and the narrators. Please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to the series if you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow us on our social media platforms and subscribe to the Viviana Enchantress of Books newsletter. Until next time, happy listening. Audiobook Lovin' hopes you've enjoyed this program. 